Uh, we don't want to get too. We don't want to get too friendly. We could scare off a visitor if we had one. Um, hey, listen. Uh, as Hannah said, we had a fantastic. Thank you guys so much for your prayers this weekend around the men's retreat. Um, we still have about. Well, we had about thirty guys from uh, from Calvary Mountain View here, and we were hosting four hundred guys from twenty two different Calvary Chapel ministries around the Bay Area and uh, and even beyond. Uh, we had a great weekend. We had uh, Dr. Sean McDowell out ministering to us and just giving us uh, just some great things to think about in terms of the importance of apologetics and, of course, all the newest, latest, and greatest findings and uh, evidence that, um, that they have for the, the case, of course, for our faith. So it was great. We've still got about 15 of our guys up there sort of finishing up this morning and closing things down. So continue to pray for them. And um, we're just excited about what the Lord did up there. As Hannah mentioned, we rolled out a series of uh, small men's groups that we're going to do. And the idea behind this is that it's been super challenging to find a time each week when all the men can get together. So we've kind of abandoned trying. And instead, we just hope to have a bunch of different small groups where guys can meet at whatever time is convenient for them. So just groups of two to four, and you can meet you know, at a, at a Starbucks at 5 o'clock in the morning or at a, a house at, you know, 7 o'clock at night or whatever works for you. And we're all going to go through the book of First Peter together, and then we'll get together at times throughout the quarter and just do a, you know, a big breakfast just to get together and talk about what the Lord's doing in those individual groups. So, um, guys, pray about that. If you weren't up at the retreat, uh, we missed you, but we'd love to have you uh, get on board and, and participate in one of these groups. So um, if you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible, you're going to need one. We're going to jump back into the book of Acts again this morning as we've been going verse by verse through this book. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand and we've got plenty of them to, uh, to give out to you. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, we'd love you to make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you. And we'd love it even more if you would read that Bible and, uh, and get to know the author of it. Um, so turn to Acts chapter 9. We're going to finish up the chapter this morning, looking at verses 32 through 43, and uh, as you're finding it there, it's uh, right where we left off last week, but we've all heard this familiar phrase, what would Jesus do, right? WWJD, and we've seen it on bracelets and on Christian artwork, and it was super big, of course, back in the 90s, and the phrase actually was made popular back in the 1800s. There's an American Christian author named Charles Sheldon who wrote what would become a Christian classic, and it was called In His Steps, What Would Jesus Do? And of course, we shouldn't be surprised at all to learn that it was actually long before even the 1800s here in America when that question was first asked. And in fact, I was thinking as I was studying this passage this week that if they had had WWJD bracelets back in the first century, I think it's very possible, as we're going to see in our text this morning, that the Apostle Peter probably would have been the very first one to wear one of those babies, right? What would Jesus do? Because what we're going to see, it's so encouraging. In our passage today, we're going to see Peter, as he gets involved in these multiple kind of miraculous ministry situations, and each and every time, now what we're going to see is we're going to see Peter now doing the same things which he watched Jesus do. We're going to see Peter doing them just as Jesus had done them. And of course, 
as we read, we're going to see that these are the very same things that we should be doing, the same question that we should be asking today. So let's just pray and ask the Lord to, uh, to bless this morning. Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you, Lord, as we do each and every week, just for this place that you have provided, Lord, and this time that you have set aside for us, Lord, to come together and to be ministered to by you, Lord, to minister to you through our worship. Lord, and uh, most importantly, Lord, that we would be taught by you. We pray that the teaching ministry of your spirit would be manifest here today. Lord, give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to your church. And we ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we've been looking lately, of course, at the conversion of the great apostle Paul, right? Still known to us as Saul. He was the man who would be used to literally change the course of human history. And yet what we've seen over the past few weeks is that before God could use this chosen vessel to change history, that he had to first change this chosen vessel. And he met him there, remember, miraculously there on the road to Damascus, knocking him off of his high donkey, as we said. He continued that preparation personally then in Saul, just using these two unique but very ordinary disciples who came alongside, right? Also specifically chosen by the Lord, but chosen to minister to Saul and to really encourage him during what would be these early and kind of rocky days of his new faith in Christ. We watched, remember, as he stirred up controversy everywhere he went, first in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, until finally we saw that the disciples smuggled him out of town and put him on a ship and sent him back to where he came from. Right? We read in verse 31 when we left off last week that then the churches throughout all Judea and the Galilee and Samaria had peace and they were edified And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. And we said that now that Saul was safely kind of tucked away again there at Tarsus, we know he's going to spend the next 10 years there kind of laboring in obscurity and continuing that process as the Lord prepares him for this incredible ministry that he would have. But with that... Luke now turns the narrative back to Peter, and we're going to watch in the next coming couple chapters as the Lord is going to work first in Peter, then he's going to work through Peter to prepare him to officially open up the doors of faith now to the Gentiles. And so we pick up in verse 32, and we read that it says that it came to pass... As Peter went through all parts of the country, that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. Now, if you remember before our break, looking at the story of Saul, when we last left Peter, it was at the end of chapter 8. Remember, he was leaving the region of Samaria. He and the apostle John had gone up there from Jerusalem to see for themselves this incredible work that the Lord was doing up there through then deacon Philip. And at the end of it, in Acts chapter 8, verse 25, it said that when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. 
And now here Luke says that Peter went through all parts of the country. And I love the way that King James so poetically puts it, if you use that translation. It says that Peter passed through all quarters. And this is important because what we're seeing here is kind of a shifting from that previous pattern where the apostles just kind of stayed put in Jerusalem and those who needed ministry came to them from afar. We kind of saw that in Acts chapter 5. Now we're seeing them going out, right? They're passing through all parts of the surrounding region. They're ministering to people where there was Need And I think that this is, just in this first verse, this is such a key component of this passage as we watch Peter start to do what he'd seen Jesus do, and now we see Peter's on the move. Peter's a man of motion, if you will. He's out there looking for opportunities to minister. And in the same way for us today, the Lord wants, when the Lord wants to use somebody, so often he will use someone who, like Peter, is already on the move. When we're out there and we're looking for ways to serve him wherever it is that we're already going. You've all heard the expression that it's difficult to steer a parked car, so get moving. Amen? And so here we see that with now with Peter in motion, the Lord is about to steer him right to where he can really use him which we see first is right here in the city of Lydda. Now, this is today called the city of Lod, right? It's about 35 miles north of Jerusalem. If you've ever flown into Israel, you've probably been there, right? This city is today the site of their international airport right outside of Tel Aviv. Now, it's very possible that in this city, it had already been evangelized by some of those people that were converted there on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. It's also perhaps some of these faithful believers who'd been scattered from Jerusalem in that initial persecution by Saul, you know, had gone up there and they were ministering there. Now, in either case, We see Peter passing through. He's ministering there. And it says in verse 33 that there he found a certain man named Aeneas who'd been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. So here, just in the course of Peter being up there on the move, he comes face to face with this great need, which of course reminds us, right, if we're like Peter, we're going to also find these kinds of opportunities. The Lord's going to provide us with opportunities to work mightily through us and to really touch individual lives for him. I think it's so refreshing. It's also a little challenging maybe for some of us to watch Peter here because at this point, Peter literally was the big gun in Jerusalem. He was the head of the Jerusalem church, which at that point we know had grown to thousands and thousands of people. And yet here again we see Peter ministering once again to individual people, one person at a time. And in this case, it's this paralyzed man. Now Luke doesn't tell us a whole lot about this man specifically. We don't know how old he was. We don't know whether he was a Jew or a Gentile, all that the good doctor tells us is that he'd been paralyzed for eight years. Now understand in that time, right, so he was crippled, he was helpless, he was very likely 
hopeless because in that day he would have been nothing but a burden to himself and a burden to everyone around him. There would have been no prospect that he would ever actually get well. And in this, of course, he's a perfect picture of each and every one of us and of each and every individual outside of Jesus Christ. In fact, when you look through the the gospel accounts and you look at each of the different diseases that are mentioned in the scriptures from which people are so often miraculously healed, what's interesting is that each one of those afflictions represents a different aspect of the way that sin has corrupted the human condition. Whether it's blindness or deafness or those who are mute or those who are lame or the lepers, right? Those who are suffering we see from demonic oppression or even demonic possession. Or like this man, those who are completely paralyzed, helpless. All of those things describe the human condition as it has been wrecked by sin in this world. You think about the man that Jesus meets in John chapter 5, right? Another man who's paralyzed there by the pool of Bethesda. And the point of that is he's there, he's unable to do anything to help himself. And if you remember the story, that poor man can't even take one step on his own toward these, this pool that had these healing waters. And so like this man, and like anyone who is still outside of Jesus Christ, There's no ability to try to save ourselves. If this man was ever going to be healed, someone would have to come to him to do it. And that's precisely what Jesus Christ did for each and every one of us in this room today. In Romans chapter 5, it says that it was when we were still what? Without strength. When we could do nothing of ourselves, it says, then in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. So Jesus comes to us where we are. He speaks those words that give life and help poor, helpless sinners who can't do anything of their own. In just the very same way, we see Peter come here to this very helpless and this hopeless man. It says in verse 34 that Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. And then he arose immediately. Right? So the words of Peter and the power of Jesus and this man was healed. Now I think that what's pretty intriguing and certainly instructive this morning is to notice that this story is so very similar to two different accounts when we see Jesus previously heal two different people of uh, paralysis. And the words that Peter uses here are effectively the exact same words that Jesus used. Remember both in Mark chapter 2 and the man who'd been let down by his friends through the roof and then John chapter 5 which we just mentioned there, the man by the pool in Bethesda. Jesus said to both of them something very similar. He said, arise and take up your bed. Which simply shows, again, here's Peter following this exact pattern for ministry that he'd seen from Jesus. And the pattern is, rise, right? There's an invitation there. But then he says, take up your bed. So there's an exhortation there. 
And in the very same way, the Lord says the same things to us. He says, rise, you know, I want to give you victory today. I want to heal you of that lame sin in your life that you've been involved with and that you've been trying to get over. But then he says, now I want you to take up your bed. I want you to not expect or plan to fall back into that sin. And I want you to walk in this newness in this thing that I've done for you. Right, Rise, take up your bed. Peter says, rise, make up your bed, and look, miracles are happening. And I think for us, as we seek to reach out and to minister and to really speak into and to touch the lives around us, we need to be sure that we're doing it with a very healthy balance of both invitation and exhortation. We want to invite them. We want to encourage them that the Lord can and that he will somehow provide healing for their situation, whether it's emotional or spiritual or or if it's relational or maybe it is even physical. But then that once he does that, that they need to start to walk in that healing and then come alongside them perhaps in order to help to disciple them so that they can do that. So when we minister, let's make sure we're ministering like Jesus and like Peter here as he follows the pattern of Jesus. And even more so, note that not only was he following the pattern of Jesus, but he was also relying on the power of Jesus. Notice Peter clearly identifies here who it was that was really doing the healing. He says it's Jesus the Christ. Peter wasn't trying to heal with the power of Peter. It was Jesus who was healing with the power of Jesus. And I think this should remind us that all too often we think way too much of what we can do and we think too little of what Jesus can do through us. We can fall into that trap of thinking that everything depends on us when what we really need to remember, of course, is that it all really depends on him. And John the Baptist, of course, said it best early on in the Gospel of John. John chapter 1 and verse 20, he said what? I am not the Christ. And here Peter isn't pretending to heal by any power that he has. What's he doing? He's directing Aeneas to look up to Jesus for help. And whether it's bringing healing or providing restoration in some kind of a situation that's hopeless, no matter how much we may want to try to make it happen, we need to simply point people to Jesus, knowing that he's the only one that has the power to really bring healing and to speak life and to provide wholeness in that situation. We may want to be the hero And yet, we need to remember that role's already been taken, amen? By Jesus and only Jesus. And I think that there's a freedom that comes in that because in knowing that, like Peter here, there's a freedom that comes because now we can walk in this confident faith that Jesus absolutely can and that he still wants to provide healing. Remember, for Peter, this was totally uncharted territory here. And yet Peter knew that when the Lord Jesus had been here on earth, that he had raised the dead. And so Peter also knew, why wouldn't Jesus still be able to raise the dead, even though he's seated 
up there on his throne in glory. And the fact is that when we're really letting Jesus be the one to do the work, we can expect him to be able to do the miraculous the way that he wants to do it. Because is it always God's will that he heal a person physically? Of course it's not. There are any number of reasons why he might choose not to bring a physical healing. But when we're really trusting in him, when we're relying on him to do the work, then we can also really trust and rest in his wisdom to do it exactly the way that he wants to. You know, you can fall into a trap on either end. You can fall into the trap of insisting that the working of the Spirit of God and all those miracles and all those signs of wonders, that those are only in the past, which is wrong. Or you can also fall into the trap of saying, you know, that we shouldn't, that we can't presume that God's always going to perform exactly the way that we want Him to. What we need to do is we need to be able to walk in enough faith to simply let Jesus do it the way that he wants to do it. And in this case, what he wanted to do was provide this instantaneous and this miraculous healing. We see that strength immediately was restored to these limp limbs, right? And Aeneas becomes this walking miracle. So much so that it says in verse 35, that so all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. What a statement. Not just there in Lydda, but in the entire coastal plain of Sharon, which would have run all the way down to Caesarea, there was this widespread, extensive turning of hearts and lives to the Lord. God had used this miraculous healing to direct the attention and to capture the hope and the hearts of people and turn them to Jesus. They came not only for, for physical healing, but certainly also experienced this spiritual blessing as well. Understand that the, that the plight of this poor man, Aeneas, had been going on for years, eight years. No doubt it was known throughout this kind of tight-knit coastal community. And so just seeing this man walking around whole had convinced all of his neighbors that Jesus was alive and that they needed to trust in him also. It's interesting, the name Aeneas means worthy of praise. And certainly at this point, his testimony would have prompted people to praise Jesus, right, for who had done this great healing. And I think, again, in this sense, Aeneas becomes such a great example to us in our own lives and the way that God has worked so miraculously to provide healing and to provide hope for each of us. Now, for Peter's part, although Luke doesn't specifically tell us in the text But I think that we can be pretty sure that Peter did much more at Lydda and in those surrounding areas than simply heal Aeneas. As great and as helpful as that miracle was, no doubt Peter continued just what we've seen him do, right? He continued to evangelize. He continued to teach. He continued to encourage these budding believers and to ground them and establish them in their faith just the way that he had seen Jesus do. Because remember, 
Jesus had personally commissioned Peter. Remember back in John chapter 21, there on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus told Peter to what? To care for the sheep. That's where he says, feed my lambs and tend my sheep. Feed my sheep, he says. And so I think what we're starting to see here is Peter, as he's faithful, now to really start to fulfill that commission. He's an under-shepherd of the good shepherd, Jesus. And what we see next is here Peter still kind of ministering on the move after he's found this sickness in Lydda, now he's going to find some sadness in Joppa. Look what it says in verse 36. It says that at Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. Now Joppa is modern-day Haffa, and it's located right there on the Mediterranean Sea coast. It's about 10 miles further north from Lydda. And it's the city, of course, that should kind of conjure up our memory, the prophet Jonah, right? He once went down to Joppa to try to hop on a ship, remember, to flee from God as he set sail instead off to Tar- Tarshish. Now, we knew very little about poor paralyzed Aeneas. But Luke tells us considerably more here about this other woman, Tabitha, or Dorcas, as her name would be translated in the Greek. Now, admittedly, Dorcas doesn't sound very flattering to us in English, and it kind of awakens our inner third grader, doesn't it? So we'll just get our giggles out about Dorcas. But the the name literally means gazelle. Now, we weren't brave enough to name any of our three daughters Dorcas, and yet maybe you have more faith than we do. But it's a beautiful name, right? It's a beautiful name for a woman who was a beautiful Christian and a beloved member of this community because it says there what? She was full of good works and charitable deeds. And notice that Luke adds very curiously He says that Tabitha was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. Now, I think that's important because there are plenty of people who seem to be full of good works and charitable deeds, but they're only actually full of them in their heads. Or maybe they're full of them in their hearts, but they don't ever actually do them the way that Dorcas did. Which is why I believe that under the inspiration of the Spirit, Luke specifically adds, which she did. To point out the fact that this was a woman who was deeply interested in doing good for other people, in touching their lives in practical ways to show them the love of Jesus. And for her, it was sowing. For you, maybe it's something different. But what she had done is she had taken a talent that she had and she had set it in motion and in use for the Lord. One author said she had a consecrated needle. But I think this is one of the most beautiful evidences of a truly converted person whose heart has really been touched by the Lord is that we want to take 
whatever it is we have, and we want to offer it back to him to be used so that he can take it and use it as a wonderful manifestation of the divine life that's now flowing through us and the the love that we're trying to show in the midst of a world that so desperately needs it. And each one of us in this room this morning, we have something that we could offer up to be consecrated to the Lord. We have some practical, mundane skill that could be made holy in his hands when we would just release it back to him. And Dorcas loved the Lord and she wanted to show that love in the most practical way she could for the blessing of other people. But it says in verse 37, it says, but it happened in those days that she became sick and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him imploring him not to delay in coming to them. So dear Dorcas had touched so many lives that when she suddenly became sick and died, they were beside themselves and they called for Peter. What a powerful testimony to her ministry there in the local church. And understand this, do you realize that following the death of no other apostle, no other spiritual leader, never did the early church ever call for an apostle. It was more like, oh, you know, one of the apostles or one of the pastors, one of the prophets, one of the spiritual superstars has died. Well, let's move on. But Dorcas died. Quick, go get Peter. We need to do something about this situation. Now, I don't mean to minimize the ministries of these other people, especially, of course, these pastors, right? And yet, I want to highlight the fact that there's this incredible loss that was felt. There was this hole that was left when Dorcas died because she was somebody who ministered so practically. She simply did good things for people. And she, you know, she was sewing clothing. She was caring for them in a very tangible way. Think about it like this. When your car suddenly stops working, you don't want a prophet or an apostle or a preacher to come and to prophesy or preach over your dead motor. You want a mechanic, right? And when the mechanic comes, you're going to praise the Lord when they fix that problem. And the point is that I don't think we can ever underestimate the power of practical ministry, of simply doing what we can just to provide for the needs of people in practical ways. And as I was thinking about this, I thought, wow, maybe I should kind of reevaluate my own skill set because I'm guessing that if I suddenly dropped down dead, I'm hoping you guys would be sad, but I don't know that you'd be calling for Peter, right? So... Right? I think the, the Joppa Christians here, they knew that Dorcas deserved to be in heaven, and yet they wanted her there with them. So they send for Peter. They're begging him to come. And look at the, just the beginning of verse 39. I love it because it says, Then Peter arose and went with them. And I love just the way this verse begins because sometimes we have this picture of the apostles sitting there at Jerusalem just telling everybody else what to do. And yet here, what a great reminder that Peter was a leader who served the people. 
Peter was a leader who was ready and was willing to respond when there was a need. And where do you think he learned that? Because he'd seen Jesus do it. This is what Peter would write later of his kind of personal philosophy of ministry. In 1 Peter chapter 5, he said, To the elders who are among you, I exhort, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, and not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And he says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Now, before you cross those verses out in your Bible, because you think they're just for pastors or just for people in positions of official church leadership, those are meant to be at the heart of every one of our Christian service. Peter was humble. Peter was available. And Peter knew that in serving people, who was he really serving? He was really serving Jesus. By shepherding the people, he was serving the chief shepherd. And these are the most important things for us to remember in our own personal ministry. Peter didn't say, hey, you know, I'm way too busy with this radical revival here that's happening in Lydda. I can't possibly leave to go minister to one dead woman What did he do? He responded to the need that was at hand. And maybe, you know, in the course of going throughout all the different things that you have to go through each day, maybe there's a dead person in your life, not physically, but spiritually, but the Lord wants to touch that person through you. And it may be right in the middle of something else that he's going to tap you on the shoulder and you're going to understand that he's saying, come quickly. It says in verse 39, so Peter arose, he went with them, and when he had come, they brought him to the upper room. And all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and the garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. So here Peter arrives at Joppa, he's led into this upper room, he founds not just deceased Dorcas, but he founds this whole group of these weeping widows, right? These were all these women who'd been really helped and blessed by her ministry. Now, we don't know, because Luke doesn't tell us, we don't know exactly what they expected or hoped that Peter would do. It may have been that they simply hoped that he could come and comfort these poor women who were beside themselves with grief. And yet what we read next shows us that Peter must have sensed a prompting in his spirit that came from the Holy Spirit to again do precisely what he'd seen Jesus do previously. Because it says in verse 40, but Peter put them all out And knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. So what Peter did here in the raising of Dorcas is exactly what he'd seen Jesus do in the raising of the daughter of Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, from the story in Mark chapter 5. In both cases, remember, we saw the mourning people were put out of the room. In both cases, the words that were spoken were almost identical. 
Remember to Jairus' daughter, Jesus said in the original Aramaic, he said, Talitha kumi, which meant little girl, arise. And here in this case, what Peter would have said was, Tabitha kumi, which means Tabitha, arise. And I love that because I just have this picture in my mind that Peter was there doing this, and no doubt he could hear the words of Jesus even as he spoke the words out of his mouth. Now, the one thing that is different about these two similar stories is that Luke tells us here what Peter did uh, before he did what he saw Jesus do. Notice he says there that he first did what? He knelt down and he prayed. Because in this, I believe that Peter was seeking divine direction. He was looking for Jesus' confirmation in this. And if you know anything about Peter, which we do, we know that this is profound for him. Because Peter was finally letting Jesus lead him. He wasn't trying to lead Jesus anymore like he had so often. Remember when he told Jesus not to go to the cross in Matthew chapter 16? But now on this side of that very same cross, Peter was finally letting Jesus lead him. And look at the result. Peter's now doing this incredible, miraculous ministry just the way that Jesus had done it. Maybe think back. I know there are times probably you can recall in your life, those times when you've really let Jesus be in the lead, and we think about how much more fruitful our lives were. We think about how much more fruitful our ministries were. We think about the way that he had us doing things we could never imagine we ever could have done because he's the one doing them through us. Certainly by all appearances here, Dorcas has, had been raised from the dead, right? Technically not resurrected to a new life, but she was resuscitated to her old life. Right? She was restored to that place of ministry and of service. And what I think is a little bit puzzling is the fact that the Lord raises Dorcas and yet didn't raise Stephen back in chapter 8. We're going to see he's not going to raise James when he's about to be martyred coming up in chapter 12, which simply reminds us what that God's ways are unknowable. It would seem to us that Stephen and James were probably more important to the church than Dorcas was, and yet we always need to remember that we can trust God's greater wisdom and his knowledge in the things that he's doing. I also think it's an important reminder. Remember, God didn't raise Dorcas for her sake because she would have been better off dead, right? Better off still there in heaven, and yet... She was raised for the sake of what her ministry was to other people. And isn't that precisely the very same reason that he saved any of us? It's the same reason, as Jesus said, why we've passed from death into life. We can never forget that our salvation has a heavenly purpose far beyond just our place there in heaven. We've been raised to new life in order that we could proclaim that new life to those around us, right? So that we can be a testimony to the power of Jesus to bring life 
where there was once only death, to bring healing where there was only sickness of sin. We've been raised so that we too can minister practically the way that Dorcas did, so that the Lord would be glorified for what he's done, sometimes simply because people are looking at us with disbelief. Right? And the way that the Lord has brought this transformation and provided this resurrection spiritually for each one of us. It says in verse 41 that he gave her his hand, he lifted her up, and when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. So because of Peter's faithful ministry to this one dead woman, the Lord now allowed an entire city to be exposed to the gospel. Once again, Peter was so fruitful because he was faithful. And yet, again, it's kind of puzzling to me that if we compare what Luke says here in verse 42 after Dorcas is raised that many believed on the Lord, and we compare that with what we just read in verse 35 When Aeneas was healed, it said that all who dwelt in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. So it would almost seem that more people were converted through the healing of a paralyzed man than even from the, the resuscitation of a dead woman. Now, there is a very good explanation for this. I just wish I knew what it was. Except, except that I know that God had one. And if he's revealed it to you, perhaps you can share it with the rest of us. Right? There's any number of reasons, right? but we just don't know. But the thing that we do know, look, there's one very significant word here that Luke uses two different times in this one passage. He actually used it one other time earlier in this chapter. These are the very first Times he uses this word in the entire book of Acts. Here it says that after the Lord had raised Dorcas, that Peter, what? He called the saints together to see her. These are the first times that Christians are called saints in the Acts account. And it's that word that we're going to see Paul is always going to use, right, as we read through all of the letters he writes to the church, right? He always writes these letters to the saints who are at such and such a place, right? The saints at Ephesus or at Philippi or at Thessalonica, the saints at Rome. But when the Bible talks about Christians as saints, Remember, the idea isn't of some sort of super perfect person who's done a number of super perfect things, right? Miraculous things. The idea isn't super perfect people. The idea is simply people who are distinctives, right? Saints are set apart from the world at large. Saints are simply different. In fact, that's the, all the original word saints means. And yet it was a word that had a very specific usage. The original Greek hagios, right, often translated holy, was specifically used of the people of Israel. Right? We heard it in our verse this morning. They were a, a holy people. They were a different people. They were supposed to be a distinct people. And the real difference of them 
is that of all the nations, God had chosen them as the nation through whom he would work to reveal himself to all of the other pagan nations who lived around them. And yet as we're reading together through the Old Testament, certainly just reading through the Gospels, finishing up in Matthew, we see that Israel failed in this calling. Israel as a nation was disobedient, and because of that, we've talked about the fact that they've been temporarily set aside. And we're watching here in the book of Acts as the Lord is calling out and he's creating a new distinct group of people, the church. So as the Christians are now going to be the ones who are different. As Christians, we are called out of this culture that's all around us. And our difference rests, first and foremost, not necessarily in how we act, but the fact that we've been chosen now for this very special purpose of a holy God. And that purpose is to reveal him and to reveal his love and his grace to all of these pagan people who live around us. So it's not that we've been chosen necessarily for greater honor, it's that we're different and that we've been chosen for greater service. This is why you'll often hear it said that we've been saved to serve. There's so much that's wrapped up in this simple word saints, right? There's an incredibly high calling and there's a very sacred duty. So as we finish up, right, we've got one more verse. Aeneas has been healed and Dorcas has been raised and Lydda and Joppa were both experiencing these powerful spiritual awakenings all because Peter was on the move, he was faithful, he was ministering just the way he'd seen Jesus minister. And it says in verse 43, so it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon, a tanner. Now, no doubt, during the many days that he kind of tarried there in Joppa, Again, we believe Peter probably just continued doing the things that he'd seen Jesus do, right? Shepherding the flock. He was taking this opportunity now to help ground all of these new believers in the truth of the word of God. It was miracles that had drawn them to the faith, but it was the word of God that would keep them and grow them and ground them in the faith. And of course, this is significant. And yet in this case, I think it's not only what Peter did while he was in Joppa, but it's where Luke says he stayed at Joppa because this shows us that God is really preparing Peter for the next chapter of his ministry. The fact that Peter, right, this good Jewish boy, the fact that he would be staying in the house of a tanner would have been a very shocking statement to any observant Jew of that time because tanners were considered to be unclean. Right? In, the, in the Jewish rabbis and how they understood the Levitical law, which said it was strictly forbidden to associate with anyone who worked routinely with dead animals. In fact, according to their interpretation, a tanner had to live at least 75 feet outside of any village because he was constantly, ritually 
unclean. And yet look at the way that God is slowly moving Peter one step at a time away from his Jewish legalism and moving Peter, introducing him into this freedom of God's wonderful grace. And I think that what we're seeing here is in this, Peter now really is starting to do just what he had seen Jesus do. He's starting to associate with those people that had been called unclean. He's starting to break down those walls of legalism and of tradition. And he's starting to to really minister to the hearts of people. And this important work of God in Peter's own heart, we're going to see this is really where God was laying the groundwork for what he was about to do in and through Peter after these many days. Because it's right here at Joppa, right? It's not by accident at all. It was here in Joppa that God had called the prophet Jonah to take his message of grace to the Gentiles. And it would also be right here at Joppa. As we turn the page next week to Acts chapter 10, it's right here at Joppa that Peter's going to call the apostle Peter to do the very same thing. Take my message of grace and go to the Gentiles. And this time we're going to see, it's going to take a little convincing, but we're going to see this time God's servant is ready to obey. We're going to see the doors for the next phase of the ministry of the gospel begin to open to go out to the whole world. When we think now about the apostle Peter here in the book of Acts, and we remember how we read about him Right, The disciple Peter back in the pages of the Gospels. What an incredible difference. What an incredible testimony of the way that the Holy Spirit can change and can empower and can equip somebody. Right, We used to kind of cringe every time Peter's name would come up. right, Expecting that he was going to do or say something stupid. And yet now... He's doing and he's saying the things that he saw Jesus do and say. And now he's this incredibly effective, he's this incredibly powerful vessel, this tool in the hands of the master. And I think that we can leave this morning encouraged that if that's our heart for our own ministry, whatever sphere of influence and ministry that God has given us and wherever he's placed us to minister that we can be exactly the same. If we simply do the things that we saw Jesus do, we simply say the things that we saw Jesus say, and we simply minister the way that we saw Jesus minister. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you so much for this morning, Lord, and we thank you for your word, Lord, and we're so thankful for your spirit and um, the way that he takes us, Lord, in our brokenness. And he empowers us and he equips us, Lord, and he prepares us, Lord, for that high and holy calling, Lord, as saints, as a chosen people who are set apart to serve you, Lord, as you want to reveal your love and your grace and your mercy, Lord, to those around us who so desperately need hope and need a touch from you. And Father, we pray that we'd be available. We pray that we would be open to your spirit as he guides and directs, Lord, and as he he empowers and he equips us. And we thank you, Lord, for your grace. And we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name.
Amen. Let's stand and let's uh, worship the Lord together this morning.